we are experiencing a collective trauma. Like adults don't have the tools to navigate this right now, let alone students. It's really not quitting. It's like making a decision to, to redirect to find myself. When we create vulnerable spaces for people like our staff, we are modeling for our staff how to create vulnerable and safe spaces for our kids. Breakdown Wake Up is about discovering the groundbreaking wisdom within our most challenging life stories. I'm Meg Mateer, a psychology nerd turned business consultant and entrepreneur. Join me to hear from leaders about when things in their lives were breaking down and to listen for the wisdom waking up. Along the way, we'll explore fresh perspectives like how distress is a driver of success, not a barrier to it, how our personal and professional lives are inherently connected, and how our individual experiences can help solve broader societal challenges. In this episode, I speak with Miriam Freed. She's an educator and now works as a liberation coach. And Miriam shares this story with me about continuously running into challenges professionally. You see, Miriam is a real dedicated activist. She's someone who has strong values and has a real vision of reforming the education system. But in her experience, she kept running up against administrative challenges or toxic workspaces or places where there wasn't even a dialogue I think many of us can relate to this experience. Many of us who are dedicated to really making a difference in the professions that we invest our time in. And this pull towards making a difference paired with the resistance or perhaps the speed at which that change is actually happening or able to happen, that tension builds within us. And it can feel like a huge experience of when things are breaking down. But in the midst of her tension, Miriam decided to take her own journey, to stay connected to what her gut was telling her, and not get phased by the different injustices that she was seeing. Change work is hard. Social innovation is hard. Going against the grain is hard challenging existing narratives. These are all things that we as activists need to do. And it's no wonder that we experience tension internally and within our relationships around these issues. It's understandable that things might feel like they're breaking down within us, but it's that fiery truth that keeps coming back, keeps yelling louder and louder to continue to pay attention this inner voice that has such strong values for those of us who feel it, who feel that rebellious activist voice, we cannot ignore it. 
It will continue to cause us pain if we don't listen. And not only just listen, but really pay attention and start to invest that energy in areas, in projects that really align with that. So keep that in mind as you go into this interview. So Miriam, it's so great to have you on the Breakdown Wake Up podcast. Such an honor to be here. So you are a liberation coach and consultant focused on the intersectional relationships of wellness, expression, and justice. Your work is inspired by 10 years as a public educator and school leader in systemically underserved communities. In efforts to raise, heal, and empower the young people in your classes and to dismantle systems of oppression within education, you also undertook a journey to explore your own internalized oppressive consciousness. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a mouthful, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very articulate, your background. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been a journey to get there. Yeah, so um, thank you for... for for telling my story. It's been a journey to even get that clarity. My work predominantly was rooted in an anti-racist work and and learning more about trauma and the way that that impacts development of young people and then into adulthood. Um, And the deeper I went within that, it really took me to new layers of other systems of oppression and like patriarchy and settler colonialism, uh, environmental oppression. And so it really helped me develop this framework that was more inclusive of the human journey. And that's really what I'm working on with clients, uh, educators, and predominantly women. Okay. Yeah. So tell me more specifically, like what, what types of things are you working on within these groups? Yeah. So liberation is like, my brand, right? So I'm really, if you feel oppressed in any capacity, if you feel like there's something holding you back from really using your voice, particularly I work with people who are advocates in the justice space, but maybe not sure of where to fully step step into their power and step into their voice. So there's definitely a baseline of consciousness around injustices that are happening. I work with teachers in a liberated educator program, and it's it's a cohort program for the school year. Really, I mean, especially with everything going on right now, there's such there's such pressure, and administrators are really struggling to know how to navigate. And it's balancing like how do we make sure we are forcing on like getting the content in so our kids aren't falling behind while at the same time, like that mentality. And even as I say it, I'm like, Oh my God, the pressure, um, that mentality, like people, we are experiencing a collective trauma. Like adults don't have the tools to navigate this right now, let alone students. And so it's really important that teachers are keeping sort of the wider perspective. And I mean, just in terms of even how the brain works, like if you're not creating a safe space, like you will not learn. If you are if you are experiencing trauma, like there's no access for your brain to like it's just your prefrontal cortex is not going to be open to receiving new information. Um, and so creating like creating more of a safe container and and getting ourselves back to a philosophy. And, and like this is what I'm working people through is like, what does it really mean to 
re-indigenize and decolonize education, even and especially now so that students have more opportunity to do deeper healing and so that you're also like teaching wisdom over teaching content and like, what does that balance really look like in a way that's equitable? Um, and that's, that's been the journey for educators. And then I'm also working with women largely in, in really unpacking the way that like that patriarchy and supremacy lives in the body and how that impacts our ability to advance in our career, experience pleasure in relationship hold boundaries for ourselves and like what do boundaries look like for women in a way that's authentic so that's really dependent that that those are my one-on-one clients and really is dependent on on where they're at so if like there's no re- relationship with the physical body well you can't be embodied and empowered if you don't have a relationship with your body if you feel great in your body but you're struggling with your voice then like maybe we're going to focus on expression so it, it really depends on on what people are working on it's really important work that you're doing. I think especially like this idea of bringing trauma and sort of bringing personal development, but also like sort of a trauma lens into the education space, I think is so important. And I think the earlier that we can start to understand ourselves and understand the impact that, for example, intergenerational trauma has or systems of oppression have on us, I think the more equipped we are to be empowered as a collective. So that's really amazing what you're doing. And also the work with women, I think, is really important as well. You're stepping out and taking charge in standing for these, you know, these issues as an independent consultant. So so tell me, I'm really curious to hear more about your journey and your story that you want to share on the Breakdown Wake Up podcast. You had your own experience of distress and coming from the lens that you have, you know that it's not an isolated event, that it's very contextual and and the wisdom that was in that experience. So where does that story start for you? So I was really fortunate to be, and I use the language raised because I totally was, um, I was raised at a school um, called Phoenix, uh, rising from the ashes, rebirth, land of the misfit kids was also, and I'm like, oh, that's me. My master's program, when I decided to teach at this school was kind of like, you're crazy, like you don't want to work there. And it, it was students who had have been involved in the prison system. We had a childcare at our school, a lot of teen parents. And the the mission of the school was really rooted in anti-racist work and really trying to unpack and understand what restorative justice could really look like. While this, while this whole evolution of understanding trauma was happening, I also was amidst a toxic, like long-term toxic relationship that now I can say was toxic. And that was a piece of the breakdown, right? That was my first time saying no, like that was the first boundary I really held. And I was like, I'm like, I'm out. Um, and, and just that then kind of created a series of quote unquote quitting. And it's really not quitting. It's like making a decision to, to redirect, to find myself. Um, and so at the end of four years at the school, I was ready to kind of take what I had, what I felt I had mastered, um, and put it somewhere else in, Boston Public Schools, I took another leadership position. And it just wasn't 
the shift I needed. And I was like, I am, I don't know what to do. Like I'm doing what I feel like I quote unquote should be doing to, to serve my kids. But like, am I actually serving them? Like, is them passing this test, like actually serving them? And so it was through that. I think that was like my, like, I'm going to break out. So I don't know if it was like, it was like my whole life was the breakdown. (laughs) And then this came like a breakout point where I was like, I'm quitting this job. I'm selling my car. I'm buying a one-way ticket to Asia. The like my seed had cracked. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God, there must be light above the dirt, but I was still like in the dirt. Yeah. So you were, you, you had shifted from like, a very sort of, it sounds like very open, very justice-oriented, anti-racist school environment to going into the Boston public school environment. And then what happened there? What was the feeling like? I mean, I was new to this school. It was another turnaround school. And I'm leading this team. And I'm like, I feel sort of alone in the depth of my understanding of this issue. And as a new leader, right? You're like, how deep do I go? Where do I go? All these. And I'm sharing, I don't know, if a lot, but like questioning us in a different way. And even that felt so new. And I was like, damn, like we are, I need to figure out what the deepest places are that I need to take people that we need to understand as human beings that can help inform where public education needs to go. What were some of those things that you were questioning? Really this re-indigenizing. So when I traveled, I was doing um, permaculture farming, which is effectively like a white rebranding of what indigenous farming is and like really using the land and creating a balance within it. So it's self-sustaining and giving us food, right? Like, oh, wow, the land can work for us. And I'm like, there's so much math in that. There's so much math in that. There's so much science in that. There's so much richness in that. And then, wow, like, why aren't we learning this in schools? And this is the redundant question, right? And I taught high school math. And there's only so much that you can argue, like, math teaches you problem solving. Like, we we are human beings. We are literally problem solving all the time. So that like, I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you that math is the only tool for us to teach logical think like linear thinking, logical thinking and problem solving. Like literally we're doing it all the time. So that, and then also just like, when I think about myself as a high schooler, Like I really struggled with depression and self-harm and binge eating and all of these other things that like I had no, I, and I did well in school and I really tried my, and I, I did well in school socially. I did well in school academically. Like I was all, I loved high school, but then I'm going to parties and I'm, I'm literally like one party I remember well. And I mean, I know this is sensitive for some people, but I'm I'm cut, cutting my wrists in the bathroom at a part. And like I had no tools to identify what what well and we had health class, but I had no tools to identify what wellness really looked like. And in my healing with the earth and in my healing with my body, I was like, it was it's such a disservice not to have that embedded in academics like for our species 
Yeah. So you had that experience as a teenager where you were like, okay, even though I'm doing, you know, stereotypically well as a student, like someone would see me from the outside and say, she's fine. You were really struggling with your own experiences, your own distress around, you know, potentially processing some trauma. And then as an educator, years later, you're thinking like, okay, so I'm intuiting that there's something that needs to happen more than just simply like what you said, content providing, that there's something that really needs to touch that emotional space, even for students that appear like they're doing well. Yeah. And and that that deeper layer is is the true, in my opinion, is the truth of anti-racist work. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I think there's a lot of hot jargon happening around like what anti-racist work looks like in schools and like social emotional learning and developing metacognitive skills. The first, I just had a, a conversation with a friend, the three core values of the first school that we worked at was courage, discipline, and perseverance. And like when that lives in a pure white man academic sense, like that's not it. Like it can't stop there. This is a de- like it is a deeper reworking of like what what does cur- ima- imagine in in a high school talking about what courage looks like in being a good friend and having an academic setting around that. Like really like moving people. What does what does discipline look like when it comes to taking care of yourself? And that's not, that's not alive at all. So you were like seeing this dissonance between what you saw as really revolutionary or, or the work that's needed in schools in a leadership position and not able to really like sort of shift the system in a way that it actually was making a difference in the way that you wanted it or, or you felt that it was. So then you went on this, this journey to Asia. It was my own kind of eat, pray, love thing. I needed to be alone. I needed culture shock in a really different way. I mean, I I got that. I got solitude. I got new connections. I I healed with like I will. I healed with the earth. I got my yoga teaching certification, and that helped me go deeper in my spirituality and develop new understanding of what my my body. And so that was all really useful when I came back I wanted more of the, I wanted more healing with the land and so I I did more farming at a Jewish summer camp and was going to be teaching farming at this Jewish summer camp and part of the framing I'm Jewish uh, part of the framing of this camp was that it was a social justice camp and I was like, this is dope. I'm going to like learn more about my culture, which I have a really complex relationship around. Um, and I'm going to be able to really practice teaching young people about healing with the land and like, let's see how this goes. And it just wasn't deep enough. It still wasn't deep enough. I'm like, how we're, we're not a social justice Jewish camp if we're not talking about racism. Like we're just not. And I can't, I can't play here. And, and so that, that was like its own sort of like the white liberal bucket that's not really going deep enough either. And I was like, I'm out. And then I was 
I was trying to navigate what to do and where to, where to go. And I taught again. And my last year teaching was undoubtedly my best year for so many reasons. Largely, I was just like, I'm going to actually try to do like what I believe needs to be done here. And so we started every, I started every class with what I called the MVP, which stands for most valuable person, but also my varying personality. And my framing there was like, before we're ready to engage in anything new, we do need to connect with ourselves. And so we would do like different breathing exercises or some, some sort of mindfulness thing, and then have a reflection piece there too. And, and then in terms of the content, I was like, why is math important? okay, like math is, and this is a question I'm asking myself, like, why do I need to teach math? I need to teach math because you need to know how to manage your money. And I need to teach math so that you can understand statistics. So you can be a well, more well-rounded human. Like you need to be able to look at a news article and, un- and unpack that. And so we really focused, that was the frame of the year for me. Like, I'm just going to keep real with this. And we got so we got so much deeper and so much real world stuff, which really served when we ended up remote and George Floyd and just navigating this trauma. Like I already had such a foundation for my kids to engage in this now like crazy reality, but slash and I'm like, did you get enough math practice? Like are you going to pass the state tests now? Like, did I, did I actually harm you by spending the time in the places that I felt were important and wrestling with that is something that in one edge, like I'm, I had been used to and tended on the side of, I need to get you to pass the test. I need to go against like my values because I don't want to hold you back. And like, I'm not right. So like, hiding myself effectively, which is a piece of the liberation, right? I'm, and this is part of like what I'm navigating in my work is we have to be talking about like a, as a, as educators and as leaders and as policy policymakers, like we need to be talking about this and like, we need to figure out what does it look like where ethics is alive in schools in a really deep way and where human development is alive in a really deep way. And some people like don't, don't share that vision. Some people are like, we can't have a parenting government. We can't have a parenting. And I'm like, yo, if we're not being good parents to each other, like, what are we doing? Yeah. It sounds also like, you know, you, in in the education space, you were trying to find your own place that would bring your own authentic sense of what was needed in terms of reform in the education system, but then continuously running up against roadblocks. And then also your own internal dissonance of like, I'm operating within a system that in some way doesn't allow me to make the shifts that I want to, but at the same time, if I do, if I can, perhaps, again, the, the the tests and the measurements then don't take into account, into consideration the development that I have been putting into those programs with children. So, for example, emotional development or practical things like understanding how to use money or um, or the statistical piece to really understand news and data around news information, which is very applicable, but at the same time, like this system isn't necessarily testing or 
measuring for that. So I can see, I can sense that like for you, that like internal dissonance of like, I want to be myself and I want to speak openly about the the reforms that I can see in this space. And at the same time, knowing the system that you're working in. But I'm, I'm particularly curious about this idea of like not being able to talk about it because I know, for example, like, and you probably, you know, this as well, like system change takes a long time, you know, any sort of change, organizational change, even group change, team change, all of this stuff is not something that can shift immediately. But what can shift is to start to have the conversation around it. So I'm really curious about like what your experience was like in that environment and and having a strong voice, um, but not feeling like there was a place to to discuss those things. In the second school I worked at, I think I was too afraid of the man, you know, like I... I and this was this is a lot of like the patriarchal conditioning around hiding hiding voice to not create conflict and to please. And then in the last school that I worked at, it was not I taught in the South Bronx. It was not a safe school. I don't necessarily mean physical safety and there were edges of that too. Like the language that was given and the response to George Floyd was poor. And these are kids in the South Bronx. And even just taking that, your response needs to be on point for that. And so that it wasn't like, you can only go backwards to understand like the culture of the school leading up to this. Um, Blatantly, blatantly race, race, like blatant racism, blatant homophobia, like blatant. This was the first school that I had been at where I really started to understand the divide between union and, and administration, which like is something I had heard about. But when you're in an organization and you don't trust your leadership and your leadership doesn't trust you, and there's in fact tension and resistance and you're leading young people. I have chills just saying that, but that that's no way. That is no way to make any kind of change for anybody. And so like I became, for my administrators, I became like this hippie teacher. And I'm like, this is not, I'm not living in the clouds with these kids. I promise you. In fact, if you want to get grounded, come sit in my room. But that wasn't like there was no space for that. Mm. Why do you think that they were like stereotyping you as the hippie teacher? Because I was having kids breathe. The superintendent came to observe my class and my principal – and I had a choice in that moment. I was like – and it was the start of my class and that's when we do our MVP moment. And I was like, either I'm going to do this or I'm going to be like, hey, guys, the superintendent's coming. Can we like, we're going to do this in a different order so that he doesn't, you know, I want to get a good observation, which is something that happens all the time. Um, And I was like, you know what? This is what I do in my class. I a thousand percent feel an integrity with what I do in my class. And if you don't like it, I'll hear about it later. Um, He loved it. My principal after was like, 
you know, Miriam, like I was really worried that uh, he wasn't going to, but he really liked it. So, and then made an announcement in front of the staff about it. And it was such a backhanded compliment. And I'm like, it takes a lot to, to support students with significant trauma to feel safe enough to sit in a room and close their eyes and breathe. Like that's a big, that's a big deal. I I don't know that he's given himself permission to sit in a room and close his eyes and breathe. And so it's like, imagine a world where schools helped people to understand how to connect with themselves. Like imagine that. It's interesting what you mentioned as well, because you're, you're, very rightly making this connection of like what's going on with sort of this mind-body connection and the the deep work that is meditation I think is often construed as being more like more in the clouds or less in reality and what you're saying is like actually no like this this practice is is more grounding is more like enhancing our consciousness and bringing about like a better ability to make aware decisions from a particular place that integrates not only our cognitive development, but also our our whole body system. What's interesting is that you're linking this, this trauma work, this emotional or sort of working on our individual emotional system to what's needed to have those tough conversations when it comes to creating justice in education or creating sort of dismantling these systems of power that have simply in some ways been perpetuated because we don't have this conversation. Amen. I don't even know how I would add to that. I think there's a couple reasons why it's it's dismissed and one a thousand percent comes from white supremacy and religious superiority meditation as a spiritual practice and like as a way to connect with wider consciousness is not what Christian faith looks like. That is not what indoctrination looks like, right? Like that's not how we've been trained to believe that faith works or that productivity looks or like that's it's just goes against like every piece of what quote unquote rightness looks like and it also like I'm going back to the start like the founding of our of our country well yeah the founding of the United States as we know it and the language of savages and like these are human beings who have really harmonized with the land and who have a really reciprocal relationship and a a relationship founded on gratitude and spirituality with the land and white men came and were like savage and so i think there's two edges to the cultural misunderstanding of this sort of deeper connection and one i think is rooted in that sort of judgment that we've been trained into. And also the other end is like when white people then come and take it and like, I'm, I'm white. And so I, I own that too. But when white people come and take it and rebrand it under the construct of, of what we know as white culture, it, it, there's a sh- there's a, a shallowness and a capitalistic energy behind it. 
And then people are like, this is bullshit. I'm not into it. You mean this is what's happened with practices like meditation? I think so. I think it, it unless you've had experience in it and you, like, I don't know that I would have really gotten deep enough to understand the impact of meditation had I not done the yoga retreat where I was forced to do it every day in a space that was so separate and like then had intense visualizations and really just notice shifts in my body. But so many people start meditating or feel that they are and don't get never get to a deep enough place. And so it just feels like some it's like becomes a wellness industry standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you there. I mean, I think what's happening now is like there is obviously this whole industry around wellness, but if it's if it's produced in the same way, like if for example, like I think the best example that I have is how meditation is being used to take responsibility out of organizations to shift how much people are working and instead shift the responsibility that individuals should take five to 10 minutes outside of their day and meditate so that they can be calm so that they can continue to work 12 to 15 hour days. So it's like, um, I think this is the point that you're trying to make that like these practices that are like very deeply awakening and very necessary for social justice are also being um, co-opted to in a way that then like completely twists them. The whole essence is completely lost in the twisting of those practices. Yeah. And what came to me as you were taught, right? Like the, the objective is that we have a work culture where we are grounded and connected. Like that's the objective behind doing practices like meditation. It's not like, oh, let me breathe. Like, let me take a time out from nonstop, whatever, like monkey brain, and then come back and just keep monkey braining. It's like, how do we actually shift the culture by supporting people to connect with themselves and connect with each other? And that in and of itself is anti, like truly, like that is that is the deepest essence of anti-racist work because it is building a collective consciousness, which is required to really move this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think the other thing that like if we we go into these practices more deeply, what I've seen in the work that I do with like meditation and, and mind-body type stuff is that like our real deeper emotions or that distress actually has an opportunity to come to the surface. We're no longer suppressing it. And then the the meaning and the wisdom behind the distress, which is often not just wisdom for us individually, but also for the collective, for our organizations, that wisdom can come up. And then we can start to shift those systems based on that, that internal knowing, that internal sense. It can be used, like you said, like if if the main aim is to really develop a culture where we are really connected and connected not just in like the happy productive times, but also in 
our distress, our dissonance, when things feel frustrating. Like I'm even thinking back to what you mentioned about like being an educator in the system and feeling this dissonance yourself. So if we can create organizations that not only allow for that awareness through practices like meditation or you know, being more connected to ourselves, but then also create the spaces where we can start to have those conversations. I mean, this is the real, like what you're saying, this is the real justice work. This is the real sort of organizational change work or institutional change work that is grounded in our own distress, is grounded in in our own gut feelings about things. A thousand percent. We can only go as deep as we're willing to take ourselves. And people really need safety to allow themselves to go deep in themselves and and certainly to share it to help other people to build depth too. And that was something that my first school really modeled for me so well. And I'm really grateful. Like our professional developments, like notoriously, school professional developments are abysmal. Like it is way more rare to find a professional development for educators that is good than it is to roll, be in the culture of rolling your eyes and wasting your time and wanting to get the heck out of the building. The way that we do good professional development is by opening the space for personal expression and personal depth and like really like allowing ourselves to surface like whatever i think there's a stigma around trauma and there's a stigma around you know sharing the most vulnerable pieces but we all have like we all have things to unpack and to make it feel safe it just moves healing a lot faster exactly and then we are able to process A, process it on a conscious level and B, process it in a shared community space that then allows that, that whole processing is, is able to not only like get released, but it's also able to make an impact. You know, like if, if we stay with our own, with our own distress, we internalize our distress. It just, you know, results in energy drain at the very least. And then at the very most, like full on a physical illness, yeah, shut down, like complete, you know, like our, our bodies are just so taxed by us holding down these signals. And, and it's a compassionate way of looking at how we approach distress and trauma and things related to this because it's saying, hey, wait a second, we know that this is uncomfortable, but we are dedicated to create the space so that the uncomfortable feelings can come up because we know that ultimately that they are productive, that they are going to be a path towards innovation, a path towards evolving as an organization. And we are willing to take that risk in order to reap that benefit, not just for you, not just so that you can feel better, but also so that we can evolve as an organization. And it's you know, it's um, it's a completely different way of looking at, for example, mental health and well-being. That it's it's not about worrying that people are going to burn out and that we're going to lose people because they just can't deal with it anymore. It's looking at those signals that 
if a majority of your company or your organization or your school teachers, for example, are starting to experience this collective distress, there's something deeply going on within the whole collective that we could all work through. And that doesn't have just to do with working too long or something like that. It has to do with these deeper feelings like you were mentioning about like, what do I really feel is education? And I think especially in the education space, because, you know, many people who go into education really want to make a difference. So there's all sorts of, you know, intuitive senses on, you know, what does that mean to really make a difference and educate? So as a school leader, and as I would imagine any leader, anything that you do, you're mod- like you're modeling. You're a constant model for what teachers could be doing in their classrooms. You're a constant model for, I'm so so sensitive to language. You're a constant model for how you're using language, how you're creating space, safe space, how you're reframing things in a way that is inclusive and whole, how you're giving feedback in a way that's non-confrontational, but also like moving the dialogue forward. And when we create vulnerable spaces for people like our staff, we are modeling for our staff how to create vulnerable and safe spaces for our kids. And when we avoid that, we're, we are moving. And like, so when we're not creating vulnerable, safe spaces, we are implicitly creating oppressive spaces. Like, they're re- and not to make it too binary, but that that is like a reality, which means then that we are creating oppressive spaces for our kids. And especially when you're in communities where oppression like is so ingrained, like it is it is the work. And this is like it took me honestly, it, it took me a bit to get really comfortable with the language of anti-racist. Because I was like, I want to be pro-equality. I want to be pro, right? And it's like, no. We need to be literally combating this. Like we ha- we have to be intent on being like we are anti-oppressive and we are going to do what we can to unpack what it means to be anti-oppressive in every way, shape and form. Yeah. And I can see the connection and the link that you make to the work that you're doing now, both with individuals and also with organizations what do you what did you do when you were for example working in the school and doing the meditation practices how did you create safe space for your students at that point it was fun and i was like if i can get half my class to close their eyes after the first month like that's great and so it it really is like a lot of patience a lot of naming the discomfort right like I know this my I know you maybe haven't done this before but this has been my experience and I promised it at giving alternatives like so for for anybody who's experienced trauma like it can actually sometimes be agitating it can make you feel more unsafe to do things like close your eyes or um be so still it can it can create even more unsafety so like what are some alternatives that you might do to just still do a meditative thing right like and just modeling it. So like I would sit on my chair, hands on my lap, doing everything I told them to do, and I would I would trust them. My eyes were closed. I'm not I'm not like searching to make sure everyone has their eyes closed. It was like once like 2 months went by of me being like I'm not going to stop asking you to do this. I'm doing it because it's I believe that it can help you. 
right? Like this is about you as an individual. This isn't about our, like anything else. Um, and then I would start to like peek and see like how many kids were and they're, they're kids, right? So like, of course you're going to have a student who's like making sounds. Like one of my classes really love to make sounds and you just roll with, like you roll with it. You stay in integrity. It's like to be expected. You cannot get angry. What was the impact of this, this meditation work that you did with the students? What did you notice? For some students, it gave them so so after the meditation, there was like a short reflective writing piece. Um, so a few things. Like most immediately, it gave me some insight into where some of my kids were and and rate like some mental health concerns that I would not have known had I not done this practice in my class. Um, and so that was really helpful on a more immediate level. For some students, the writing piece, like writing how they were feeling was like something that they learned they liked to do and was helpful to do, which like, I'm like, wow, if I taught you anything, like that has been a transformational knowing of my life. So I'm glad to have passed that in a math class. Um, And so journaling became a thing, like more of a thing for some of my kids. It also just created I've always been good with student. Like I've always, I've always been a strong relationship builder. Like I really love, like I love my kids and they know it last year, the depth of the relationships were, were different. Um, because I think there was a one, we were talking about real stuff all the time. So like, it really was a spiritual practice because there was a spiritual practice embedded in my class. It allowed for spiritual questions to come up. And it allowed for like a deeper, just a more human like vulnerability. And um, that didn't necessarily translate into class discussion as much as I maybe would have wanted and 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 maybe for the best. But in terms of my one-on-one with kids, like and I, I know this because of what they've told me, which this is the first year that I've heard things like this, is like, I really changed their lives. And I'm like, damn, I've never, I have chills saying that, but I, I've never had that, right? Like I've had, I love you, Miss Friedman, like, like, thank you so much, but I've not had, like, you've changed my life. Thank you so much, Miriam, for sharing this perspective and your journey. It's so interesting and it's really incredible what you're doing now um, with your commitment to continuing to work on justice and reform in the education system just from a different angle. I'm excited to see where I go, you know? (laughs) I am too. (laughs) Cool. Thank you so much, Meg. This was awesome. You're welcome. You're welcome. What an amazing interview with Miriam. Uh, I'm so grateful that she really dove into all of these experiences that she had at the various schools that she attempted to make things work and make her voice heard and, and make a stance within that system. It really takes persistence and commitment to your mission to your calling, to be able to walk away from so many roles, 
she had so many leadership roles that would have served her, would have been interesting and dynamic, but she is really committed to social justice and what she sees as the key to social justice and anti-racist work, which is connecting it to the emotional body, connecting it to trauma. And it's so interesting. I think this ties perfectly into the first theme, which is about how your own personal experience really informs the passion that you bring into work, the passion that then turns into businesses or projects or a coaching philosophy or something that you create yourself. You see, when Miriam was frustrated with trying different roles, she decided to go back to herself, back to her own experience of what it was like for her to be a a child, to be a student. And despite all of her accolades, despite all of her privilege and her upbringing and her performance and her engagement at school, she noticed that these emotional challenges were really impacting her ability to learn. And so when she moved into doing social justice work within education, she saw how crucial this type of emotional work, this type of trauma work, would be for people who were growing up with intergenerational trauma, with the trauma that comes with systemic violence and systemic oppression. And her dedication to integrating those two is so important. It comes through her lived experience, but it's something that can really start to shift the bigger picture in the world. I think another theme to think about is this idea of the connection that our experience of distress has with broader systemic injustice and that social justice work and real activism work means understanding and listening to our distress. It means going there, not just as individuals, but creating spaces within institutions where we can start to explore and unpack those things. And I think that's why It's so important for social justice workers, people who are in this field, to learn this new paradigm that within our distress, there is embedded wisdom. Because if we as social activists continue to push, continue to try and drive change on the outside in the bigger world, but we suppress our own feelings on the inside, We suppress our own expression of that pain, of that distress. We just lose energy and steam. We lose connection to ourselves in a mission that's already incredibly challenging. And when we can tap into that wisdom, when we can listen to that frustration, when we can feel that anger or that interpersonal conflict, that jealousy or that rage at somebody else and not see it as a flaw of what's going on for us, but as fuel to drive a particular project or our dedication to a mission, that distress starts being our tool for deeper understanding. 
and to drive these social activist movements. And this is exactly what Miriam is doing. She's continuously going back to her own experience, her own gut feeling of what she's dedicated to, and it's keeping her committed to that mission. We have to start looking at our distress as signs of wisdom. It's the only sustainable way that we can start to feel truly well. This is why I'm dedicated to this project. My own distress keeps knocking at my door, keeps telling me to challenge the status quo, to keep getting the message out there, and to keep working with people, people like you who are curious about understanding the wisdom within your own distress and using it to fuel social change projects, to start a new career, to move into a different type of relationship, to reconnect with yourself. Denying our distress is like lying to ourselves. Connecting to our distress is like reconnecting to ourselves. And connecting to that distress, although it feels incredibly scary to begin with, can feel relieving because all of a sudden that pressure of suppressing everything has been released. If you're interested in doing this type of deep work in a community of people that are similarly focused on making a social impact and understanding themselves better, check out the website. There's individual coaching. There's a full program that we're launching. There's so many opportunities to start to work with this yourself. It's not easy to necessarily do it on our own. After all, we're fighting the social narrative that we've been raised in for years telling us that our distress is weakness or something that we should ignore or jump over. So it's really helpful and powerful to be doing this work in a community. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to hearing from you. See you next week. If you like what you just heard, please check out our website at www.breakdownwakeup.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list, you'll get weekly updates about episodes and special events. We also have a growing community of people who are getting excited about this concept and sharing their own thoughts and reactions. Finally, if you're trying to discover the underlying wisdom within your own breakdown and need some help, we've designed special programs to help do just that. Thanks again for listening, and remember, when things are breaking down, important wisdom is waking up.